Rebuild SoCal partnership represents more than 2,700 contractors and 90,000 union workers throughout Southern California. The partnership is dedicated to advocating for clean water, safe bridges and roads, which are vital to Southern California's economy. Better and safer infrastructure means good jobs and stronger communities. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please visit us at rebuildsocal.org to learn much more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rebuild SoCal Zone. I'm John Swatolsky, your host for today's episode. Today, we're speaking with Adan Ortega, the chair of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Mr. Ortega took office as chair as recently as January 1st of this year. He has a long and storied career advocating for water policy and water projects, and maybe most importantly, water security in Southern California. So we are so excited to have you here today, Adan. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here with you today. Well, thank you. Thanks for making the time. Let's jump right in. I just first want to ask you about your background and really how you came to the Metropolitan Water District. And so if you could just kind of share with us how you first got started and kind of your journey since then to your position today. Sure. Um, and I'll begin just by giving you a little background on what MWD is for your listeners that might not be familiar. Metropolitan Water District uh, serves an area spanning from Ventura County to the Mexican border along the coastal plain. And what we basically do is bring imported water from Northern California and the Colorado River uh, to 19 million residents of Southern California. We do other things as well, like promote conservation and water recycling and things like that. But that's our foundation, we were founded in 1928. And in 1931, it's something I think your listeners might be interested in. The voters approved a bond for $220 million to build the 300-mile Colorado River aqueduct. That's mm -hmm. comparable to about $5 billion today. And so that's the history of MWD. Is for myself, uh, I was vice president for external affairs at Metropolitan from uh, 1999 till 2005. I had worked at Central and West Basin uh, prior to that as assistant general manager. We built what at the time was the largest water recycling projects in the state between West and Central Basin when they were uh, jointly operated. Um, I worked for a, a California secretary of state. I was chief deputy secretary, but he was a water wonk. And so I became very familiar with Bay Delta issues where uh, I'd have to go to Washington to uh, try to get the federal government to pay their fair share of what they were calling the CalFed project at the time, which was a project that was going to bring water more reliably down to Southern California through the Bay Delta. I also founded a two statewide organizations, uh, the California Association of Mutual Water Companies, which uh, represents the smallest water systems in California. Uh, California's history began with mutual water companies. These are water co-ops. They're not for profit. And uh, they were started for building the, the infrastructure that started farming in California, including irrigation ditches and all of that. We have about 800 mutual water companies still existing in California. They're community-owned nonprofits, and they're the very smallest water systems. Um, and so that's how I got into water. <laughs> you know, I just I think folks would be interested in in yourself if you if you don't mind. Just you know, what makes you passionate about water policy? Why is water 
so important um, to us. You know, if you just think about all the infrastructure, all the engineering, all that it takes into going into to that, it's the most important thing, if I could characterize it as such, it's the most important um, concern, issue that we need to address, most important societal lifeline that we have. And, and so I would just wondered if you just expand a little bit more on, on how you think about water and why you care so passionately about it. Yeah, well, you know, I have to tell you, I, my whole life is about water. I started swimming when I was very young in order to manage uh, my childhood asthma at the time. And so I, to this day, I, I'm a lap swimmer and an open water swimmer. And so in many ways, I'm all about water. Uh, but mm -hmm. then also during my time as uh, Chief Deputy Secretary of State, you know, I really became grounded on the issue of what it takes to be um, somebody that can contribute to good government. And the foundational operation of government, I believe, is to provide services. And the more found the most foundational service that government provided through its history, other than national security was provision of water services. Um, back when early municipalities like Minneapolis and others were founding uh, centralized water systems, uh, they were celebrated. There were huge events when a community would get a distribution system that would distribute water that was disinfected, uh, that liberated uh, society from the burdens of cholera, and other types of, of mass diseases that used to basically shorten our lifespans. And I believe very strongly that uh, the provision of water and public confidence in water is paramount to the confidence in government. And I think both are challenged in ways that I'm sure we'll discuss during this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. So your experience as the chair of MWD, or as some of us call it, METS, just started a few months ago, but it's been marked by some pretty exceptional and extreme weather events. Um, you know, in the past, the multi-year dry spell, and then a very, very wet past winter in Southern California. Can you just talk about your experience uh, during that, those extreme kind of, let's call them whiplash of dry to wet, and perhaps back to dry again? That's interesting. Uh, when I was elected on October 13th, 2022, it rained. <laughs> and uh -huh. I, it was, nobody was expecting that it that it would rain. And on the day that I was sworn in in January, we had a record deluge of an atmospheric river. And many people mm -hmm. said, well, uh, then you must have solved the problem, your election. And <laughs> I thought of it as either the biggest blessing or the cruelest joke ever. <laughs> and so uh, I did not want to leave anything to chance. And so working with the board of directors, uh, we started our climate adaptation master planning process immediately. We call it camp for water. And this is where we're taking a big look at our existing infrastructure. We're looking at these uncertainties that some people are calling climate whiplash. And we're basically taking a wholesale look at the kind of infrastructure that it'll take in order to deal with a changed climate. You know, interestingly, one of the, the lessons that I've observed over time is that this isn't the first time we've dealt with climate change. The pioneers that came to California found a very different climate in California than they were used to uh, in their places of origin. 
And what they did is where they once depended on rivers in their native lands, they constructed aqueducts. They brought in all this vegetation that created modern agriculture and government in order to govern and regulate it in terms of water rights. And so we have to be thinking the same way, except that we didn't have to go anywhere to find the changed climate. The changed climate came to see us and we're in the midst of it. And so some of this climate adaptation master planning is like flying an airplane and building it at the same time. We have no choice. And there's some stark realities that we're going to have to get used to, like the fact that it's going to be incredibly expensive. Imagine, I just told you that uh, in today's dollars, it costs $5 billion to build that aqueduct. Imagine what it would cost today. And we know what we have some examples like we've been talking about building more reliable conveyance from the Delta, uh, the infamous Delta tunnels. Those mm -hmm. themselves would cost $18 billion in today's dollars to build mm -hmm. if we build them. So we have some huge challenges about how we're going to build this infrastructure to meet the needs of the future. Yeah, that's a, a tremendous price tag. And and that is, as you just referred to, not the only challenge. And we recently saw with the uh, governor's infrastructure um, budget uh, package of bills that the uh, the Delta Tunnel project was was removed um, to be streamlined through CEQA. Mr. Chair, what is your thoughts and prognosis on our ability to build, rebuild? major infrastructure in this state. From our perspective, it's grim. It, it's not terribly positive when we see the high-speed rail taking decades um, to build. And, and the, the fact that these projects just take so much effort just to get permitted. Can you expound on that a little bit and tell us your thoughts on, on getting infrastructure built? Absolutely. About a month ago, a former official of the State Water Resources Control Board who left wrote a report saying that if Metropolitan were to pursue Delta conveyance through the tunnel option, that we would go bankrupt. Well, the reality of it is that no matter what we do, unless we redo our financial structure and our regulatory process, we'll go bankrupt anyway. And so what would take the place of this, uh, of us not being able to build more reliable conveyance in the Delta so we could get these surpluses of water when they're available, um, is that we would have to build a lot of local projects, uh, recycling projects, desalination projects. You have it over time, we would have to do it all. But mm -hmm. um, the delays that are caused by lawsuits and challenges to permits, not to mention the financial challenges make it almost an impossible task. And it's probably an existential issue that we're facing. Uh, I think the governor uh, tried to address that by saying that we needed to look at ways of expediting litigation against some of these projects like the Delta Tunnels. Uh, mm -hmm. From my vantage point, it would be good to know if we're gonna be able to build them or not. And if we can't build them in the way that the governor has envisioned, then we need to come up with plan B. I heard uh, uh, Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot the other day say exactly that. Uh, and so certainty isn't just the certainty of building the project. Certainty now involves 
knowing if we can build the project. Because if we can't, because of these other obstacles, then we need to come up with other plans. This is urgent. The idea that we have to adapt to climate change is urgent um, because it's not going to take much in order to put us in a very precarious position where there's destruction in the state of communities in the Delta area, farms in the Delta area, and harm to our ability to convey water that helps us uh, support the trillion dollar economy of Southern California. So I see this is very, very urgent. And so I think the staff might tell you that I've been uh, very assertive, if not obnoxious, in promoting the fact that our climate adaptation master plan has to be in place, you know, within the next 18 months. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your advocacy and your, your leadership. I use the term grim and, and, and existential, as you described it, is much more appropriate. And that's that's almost terrifying. It's troubling. To, to say the least, and hopefully our leaders in, in Sacramento um, will hear your voice and, and we're here to help amplify uh, that voice. I mean, uh, you use the term bankruptcy as well in that um, if you can't move water uh, because of the lack of infrastructure, then yeah, you know, you know what are we doing here? I mean, it, it's, it's, really, it's really frustrating. So your leadership is, is you know, much appreciated and right on point there. So I think we need to also talk about the fact that we've been the victims of our own success. Mm -hmm. You know, Metropolitan has been approaching water planning for the last 25 years in a very integrated way to the point that demands have gone down. And we use less water today in Southern California, despite the fact that we've grown by more than 5 million residents. And so at our peak in 1990, for example, Metropolitan was moving 2.3 million acre feet of water to our member agencies. Today, we're lucky to sell a million acre feet less than that, 1.3 million acre feet. So with reduced sales also comes you know, reduced revenue. And our ability to incentivize recycling and conservation and those things. And so we're having to look at how we raise revenue in a whole different way. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Well, I appreciate that. I, Don, I'd like to move just to get into the weeds a little bit more on, on your capital investments. Um, MWD has recently put into place a five-year project labor agreement, which we certainly applaud in that covers roughly 90% or about a billion of the work in your capital improvement program. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that agreement and tell us what, what that means for infrastructure going forward with the agency? Yeah, we, you know, I was at Metropolitan when we did a previous project labor agreement in the early 2000s for the construction of Diamond Valley Lake, which is the last mm -hmm. uh, reservoir built in California. Uh, that was over 20 years ago. Um, today's project labor agreement is different because it includes uh, over 33 projects and, as you said, about a billion dollars worth. And that's not counting uh, what uh, the value of Pure Water SoCal, which is a water recycling project. It'll be the largest in the nation that will purify water to replenish our groundwater basins uh, across the region. Um, that project alone will be anywhere from five to eight billion dollars. So we're talking some huge dollars here that we're going to spend. 
But I think where the PLA is remarkable is that um, we negotiated with the labor councils uh, to allow specific allowances for, for micro businesses to use their own company labor to staff projects before going to the union labor. Um, and this is in order to allow a chance for small business, which is also struggling. And so kudos to labor for seeing that need in our society. Uh, our goal is uh, to use 60% uh, of local workers on our projects, which uh, this is the highest goal of any PLA in Southern California. Uh, mm -hmm. We want to have a 15% goal for transitional workers. You know, those are those that are required to use helmets and hard hats uh, to engage. We want to engage veterans in our construction projects. Um, and then also, you know, labor very generously agreed with us to uh, support a pre-apprenticeship programs as a way to build a construction career pipeline in California. We're losing people in California that can build these projects. And so we see the labor councils as important partners in, in being able to have that labor force that we need locally. Then also the labor councils have agreed to support uh, our business outreach program. Uh, as I mentioned before, especially when it comes to small minority businesses um, in the region uh, so that we can facilitate their entry into the construction arena for these projects. So we're very proud of this partnership with labor. I think it stretched both of us uh, to do mm -hmm. things that are not just related to building projects, but to developing the workforce that this region desperately needs, you know, to build large infrastructure projects because we just don't have it right now. Mm -hmm. Well, well, thanks. I mean, that's really cutting edge stuff and hopefully an example for, for other agencies and labor councils uh, throughout the state and, and, and the country. So MWD has, what, about 360 very talented men and women constantly working on this capital improvement, considering it's, it's the backbone of your work and of, our, of the water we consume. Uh, but there are challenges um, in, in certain communities and in historically disadvantaged communities. Can you just talk about some of the new concepts or, or ideas that MWD has towards bringing water into those disadvantaged communities? Yeah, well, I think that's a very good question. You know, I, I'm an advocate for small water systems, especially those that serve disadvantaged communities. And people would be surprised to learn that we have communities right now with contaminated water that, that has levels of PFAS, for example, which is a forever chemical. Um, we have communities that have well water that exceeds the response levels set by the government. And remarkably enough, they don't have a connection to MWD. Here are, here are poor people that have been paying property taxes for well over 50 years, supporting everybody else, and at their, their time of need, we're not there for them uh, with a connection to a safe drinking water source as we provide at Metropolitan. So we're, we're looking very seriously at how we help these communities have a connection so that they have the ability as they're building their treatment systems to have safe drinking water in their communities. The other one that I'm very proud of is Pure Water SoCal. When we take this water and we bring it to potable standards, you know, we're not just doing that. We're also pursuing a potable reuse permit uh, at the state level. Mm -hmm. The most equitable use of recycled water that benefits all communities is 
uh, purified uh, water that we use for replenishing our groundwater basins. Um, you, we've heard these stories of communities in Orange County, the newer growth areas like Irvine um, and Newport that have access to recycled water for irrigation. And, you know, we've had those cycles of drought where you have communities that are well off uh, with green grass in their schools for their children to play in, while the children in, in schools in the inner city had to go, um, you know, with, with dirt playgrounds. Mm -hmm. Well, um, as we build this pure water SoCal, I think we'll be able to have more equity in the distribution of this reclaimed water because if it's in the main distribution system, it'll be available to everybody, including the poorest people in our society. So I'm very proud that we uh, that we're, we're we're taking all that very very seriously. Uh, I think our project labor agreement is uh, one of the areas that we're working on to help uh, low income communities because we want to draw from them to build the workforce of the future. Uh, we have a scarcity of water operators in California, especially as our water regulations become more stringent because of the more sophistication of technology. And so uh, developing that workforce out of people that are already here is something that we believe is a top priority in addressing the needs of disadvantaged communities. Well, we appreciate your efforts uh, on that. It's so, so important. And, you know, we always we tend to think about equity in terms of economics or in, in terms of uh, access to jobs and and income or education. But I think you're you're right here. Just that example of Irvine versus other communities and, and what children have access to on their their playgrounds just exemplifies it so much that water really is the foundation of our lives, really. And so that's really interesting. And I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, Mr. Chair, just finally, I want to ask you a bit broader, a uh, bit broader of a question here. Um, what does the future of water delivery from your perspective look like in Southern California? I mean, I've said before on this conversation that conservation alone is, is not enough. We can't conserve our way out of a a never-ending drought or the whiplashes of extreme weather. We need infrastructure investment to create the resilience, the equity that we all, what we all want. So what, is, what would that infrastructure future look like from you're, your perspective? You're so right. Um, so let me, let me begin by observing what happened during this most recent drought. Our residents, as I've shared with you, have been conserving. And that conservation has resulted in water that we have at places like Diamond Valley Lake. So last year, we were told by the state that our Northern California supplies would be cut to 5%. Now, back in the early 2000s, we never envisioned that any reduction of our Northern California supplies would exceed 20%. So we had areas that were not connected to the water from Diamond Valley Lake. And, and this is specifically in Ventura County, portions of the San Fernando Valley and the San Gabriel Valleys. And what happened is we came at the point where we were gonna run out of water for those communities. And they had to go into extreme conservation measures uh, because we couldn't get the water that we had stored to them. And so uh, one of the things that we're reckoning with is the need to interconnect our water system. 
just like I told you that uh, we're not interconnected into some of these small disadvantaged communities that have PFAS in the southeast part of LA County, we have large areas that are not connected to metropolitan storage system. Um, I, I'm very hopeful that this is a good way to go for Southern California because in the past, when we built a system for one part of Southern California that didn't directly serve another part of Southern California, you know, the issues of equity would arise. You know, people in San Diego would say, well, why would we build something that's not going to serve us directly? That's only going to serve people in L.A. And people in L.A. would say the same thing. And people in the Inland Empire, by interconnecting our water system in order to deal with climate change and the suddenness that scarcity could come upon us, uh, I believe we will settle some of the issues of equity because it will be unquestionable that when we build a, a pipeline, that that pipeline will benefit the whole region. So, for example, we have interconnection number one that will connect these areas in, into our distribution system. Um, I think the future of D-cell, for example, will have to come in a way that interconnects with our uh, the rest of our water system. The same with recycled water is we get uh, these potable reuse permits so that we can have purified drinking water that otherwise would end up in the ocean from these wastewater agencies. So we're building, I think, a new class of infrastructure that is going to interconnect the region in a way that it has never been interconnected before. So we're going beyond integrated planning and we're going to interconnection. Just this one pipeline uh, that I'm talking about that would interconnect uh, Diamond Valley Lake into Ventura County and other parts of our service area will be about a billion dollar project. So hmm. we have some big projects coming as we're uh, building what I call the climate adaptation system that will keep Southern California going through a lot of uncertainty that these times bring us. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, we appreciate your your vision and your leadership in, in pointing our communities and, and your board and, and Metropolitan Water District as a whole towards, towards that future. So we appreciate it. We appreciate your time here today. This has been such a great conversation. I hope that you'll join us in the future and think of this as an ongoing conversation as, as Rebuild SoCal Partnership. Look forward to partnering with you to advance all of these much needed projects. Thank you, John. I really appreciated being with you and all the work that uh, Rebuild SoCal does for all the residents of California. Thank you. Thank you, folks. That was Adon Ortega, chair of the Metropolitan Water District. And that's all for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And please remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Take care.